University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkland. Visit ubc-br.org or at ubcbr on Facebook for more information. We'll take a look at the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 19. We're in our series, Rebranding, Examining How We See Ourselves and Others. In reality, the way that we see ourselves matters. It directly correlates to the way that we see everything and everyone else in the world. Self-perception is one of the most challenging aspects of being human. And over the last several weeks, we've been looking at what it would take for us to see ourselves in a different light, in the way that God sees us, such as a person who is loved and empowered, rather than a person who's indistinguishable and insufferable. Is there a better day to talk about rethinking the way that we see ourselves than Easter Sunday? So what's the context of John chapter 20? Jesus has resurrected just in case you missed the boat on this one. Well, some of the disciples apparently did because it says this in verse 19. On the evening of the first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them. John reports that the disciples were locked inside the house. They have boarded the doors and trembled in fear of the Jewish religious leaders that had murdered their Lord. They are physically locked in, but they're also emotionally and spiritually locked in. You could say that the disciples are caged in regret. The disciples are caged in the disappointment of Jesus' failed promises. They had witnessed his arrest, and some of them had seen his execution. They knew he was lying cold and lifeless in a sealed tomb outside the city. They are caged in the regret that all this was for nothing. What had they had given up so much to follow him those years ago? And for some, they gave up family and friendship. For others, they gave up their businesses and their jobs. And still for some, they had given up their reputation to follow this guy who was now convicted and executed as a heretic and insurrectionist. The disciples are caged in their regret the final actions against Jesus in his life. Some of them had gone with him to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. Others had fled in fear as the temple guards showed up to arrest him. And then there was Peter, who had denied that he knew Jesus in the courts outside of Jesus' trial. Filled with shame and sorrow and regret, it must have burdened his soul to know that he had to live with that mistake forever. And then, of course, we know the story of Judas overwhelmed with grief and shame, who hung himself as a result. The disciples are caged in fear of what their association with this convicted heretic and insurrection might mean for their safety. And all that regret is is culminated in this moment of, of shock and awe as Jesus stood before them, and they were terrified. The disciples are also locked in bewilderment with the crazed report that their female companions had seen Jesus resurrected after he was brutally tortured and executed, and yet he met them on a road, and apparently he was wearing bleach-white robes, and he was doing just fine. And if we can be honest with ourselves, 
I wonder if we could identify with what locks us in in our lives. What, what gives you fear and anxiety and turmoil and headaches? And what gives you disappointment and frustration and resentment and anger and, and greediness and desire for more? So may we see that as we look a little closer at the gospel narrative, we can connect with it. And that is when we get a glimpse into Jesus' sense of humor. As the disciples are locked into this roller coaster of emotion, Jesus appears before them. And you know this sent their heart rates through the roof. In an instant, the disciples' biggest fears and anxieties were relinquished. And there are two things from this text that, that we need to, to, to focus in on. But I can say before I share this story that I want you to know that I love my two brothers and they gave me permission to share this story. And they've become perfectly normal human beings, loving fathers and husbands. However, when I was a kid, I bore the wrath of their wicked sense of humor. So take, for example, the time they tricked me into lying down on an unfolded sleeper sofa only to fold it up with me inside it and then walked away. You can imagine the wild and insane emotions that went through me as I thought I was going to be trapped in this place forever. It felt like eternity. It was only a few seconds. And I remember the feeling of complete terror and rage and imminent death and revenge plodding in my mind. Have you ever felt like you have been caged by regret? Unless you've been undiagnosed with narcissistic tendencies, you probably have your fair share of mistakes in your life. Within a lifetime of experiences and relationships, there is endless supply of, of times that we have gotten it wrong. Things that were said and unsaid. Trust was broken. Lies were told. Secrets were kept. Self-centered choices were made. Things were done and left undone. Misjudgments that were made. Whether it be in our, our friendships or family relationships or spousal relationships or work or work relationships or career choices or educational tracks, cars and home purchases, and many unexpected things that have gone wrong. We think about all the times that we might have regret in our life. And it's an unforeseen force that rages within us as we face all that guilt and all that shame. I mean, I'm completely sure that when I began to talk about regret, some of you thought about that particular relationship, that particular moment, that decision, that phrase spoken. I know I did. Our mistakes come, they, they tend to, to vary in degrees of emotion, such as a sense of, of loss and self-judgment, disappointment, blame, frustration, anger, resentment, and so much more. Then there's the mental games that we play with regret. We frequently engage in this cognitive exercise trying to understand why they made those poor decisions or acted as they did or what choices that we had done to reap the benefits of such horrible outcomes. Psychologists have argued that there are two different kinds of regret. The first kind is that we can change the circumstances that we're in but are too immobilized to do anything about it. The second kind of regret is when we have no opportunity to rectify the decision or action, so there's this endless, overwhelming sense of loss. And the walls of regrets, the cages around us, feels quite thick. As great Søren Kierkegaard put it this way, I see it all perfectly. There are two possible situations. One can either do this or that. My honest opinion and my friendly advice is this. Do it or do not do it. 
you will regret both. So yes, we might be able to connect with the disciples, hidden and locked away in a room when the source of our regret materializes in thin air. Look at what happens in verse 19. On the evening of the first day of the week when the disciples were locked in fear for the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And after he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. The power of this moment is, is palpable. Caged by their fears and regret, the disciples are locked away, praying against all odds that Jesus' fate of execution will pass their lives. The resurrected Lord, knowing where the disciples are physically, but also emotionally and spiritually, decides to meet them right where they are in the cage of regret. He could have called them out of the room. He could have knocked down the door and demanded that they come out. He could have left them alone to wallow in their misery. But it's here that we see the unbelievable love and grace and mercy of Jesus who goes right to them. He appears out of thin air in the room that they had locked themselves into. His message is not one of condemnation or judgment, but of peace. His first line he says to them is, peace be with you. You get the idea that disciples are so overwhelmed by this astonishing presence, but also the emotional and spiritual state they have been living in the regret that Jesus had to say it again in verse 21, peace be with you. The Greek word peace is erene, which translates security, safety, prosperity, tranquility, or harmony. It's a message to someone who is experiencing the very opposite of peace. This is the same word that Jesus used earlier in the Gospel of John when he said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, not as the world gives it to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Let it not be fearful. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will face tribulation, but take courage for I have overcome the world. Don't miss this. Jesus meets us where we are, not where we ought to be. Jesus doesn't demand that we come to him or earn his peace amid our regret. And we find that Jesus comes into our cage of emotions to bring peace to us because that's how much God loves us. So whatever regret you are living right now, Know that Christ desires to meet you right where you are. And the second and equally powerful thing that we need to not miss from this passage is that God breathes life into our weary soul through the Holy Spirit. Did you catch that in verse 22? It says, Jesus breathed the Spirit of God on them. What does that look like? What, what does that even feel like? I'm reminded of the creation narrative in Genesis 1 that tells us that God spoke and creation became. This is the Hebrew word amar. However, in Genesis 2, it gives us a more intimate account. The narrative says that God nefatch, God breathed life into existence. 
Speaking is somewhat of a distant act. However, breathing life into the nostrils of another being is so much closer. And you don't have to get any closer than breathing life into the nostrils of something. And Jesus breathes that same spirit that hovered above the primordial waters of the creation, that filled the lungs of humanity, that called forth Moses from a burning bush, that parted the waters of the Red Sea, that empowered Elijah to call down fire from heaven, that anointed Jesus to proclaim the good news that he comes to bring freedom to the prisoner and recover sight for the blind and to set the oppressed free. Jesus breathes the life of God into them. And as we are experiencing the pain of regret, knowing that Jesus meets us right where we are, we also receive life through the power of God's Spirit within us. Even when we don't feel like God is anywhere near us, God is always close to us. As air, as close to air that we breathe into our lungs. Wherever we are, God is there loving and nurturing and growing us and drawing us into the joy of God's life and love. For many, we believe that God is, is up there, distant and remote and unconcerned. To get God's attention, we have to do something very special, something significant. But this isn't the nature of God. The post-resurrection narrative tells us that God did not simply raise Jesus from the dead, restore their hope, and then ascend into the clouds. Instead, we see the nature of God to continually breathe life into us. So the very act of breathing draws us closer to God. Breathe in and out. God desires to give God's living spirit, to breathe life into us, empowering us to live out the way of Jesus. It's so important for us to understand this. And the final thing that Jesus says to them before leaving them with the short message was a message of forgiveness. He said in verse 23, if you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. What a curious thing to say to the disciples. And yet, it never ceases to amaze me at the wisdom and insight of God to know exactly where we are, what we are experiencing, and what we are feeling. The overarching message to the disciples as they are caged by their regret is one of forgiveness. Jesus holds no grudges for their abandonment in his most dire hour, for their seeming betrayal of knowing him as he stood trial, for their complete lack of faith in the promises that he said he would be crucified and he would resurrect from the dead. This is the amazing message of Easter. God forgives us for the extraordinary ways that we get it wrong, to ourselves, to others, and even to God. But herein lies the problem. The message that God forgives is amazing. It's just one we have a hard time believing in here. The, the power of regrets, emotions, rogues gallery are, are quite remarkable. A sense of loss and self-judgment, and disappointment, and blame, and frustration, and anger, and fear, and resentment, and so much more. Regret can have a damaging effect on our mind and our body when it turns us into fruitless ruminations and self-blame that keep us from engaging life. This is repetitive, and negative, and self-focused. It 
it ruminates within every way that we think and see the world. Psychologists have found that regret can result in chronic stress, negatively affecting hormonal and immune system function. Regret impedes the ability to recover from stressful life events, extending their emotional reach for months and years and even lifetimes. The challenge of regret is, is that it hears the message, I am forgiven, only to ask, but can I forgive myself? But the text isn't over. It says this in verse 24. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hands into his side, I will not believe. Apparently Thomas was getting takeout from Superior Grill when Jesus first appeared to the disciples for the first time. Can you imagine the feeling of being left out like that? But this is the ultimate feeling of being left out. Jesus had resurrected from the dead and appeared to the disciples, locked in a room, and Thomas missed it all. In fact, it was so overwhelming that Thomas doesn't believe these crazed lunatics he calls friends and sojourners. He wants to believe their story, but like most of us, he will not believe until he can touch the wounds of Jesus. And it says this in verse 26. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your fingers here. See my hands. Reach out your hands and put them in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Can we stop and, and point out just a few quick things? Number one, Jesus waited an entire another week before appearing to the disciples, and you know that every day they reminded Thomas of what he missed out on. The second thing we need to point out is that Jesus did it again. He scared the bejesus out of the disciples by appearing out of nowhere in their midst. They were locked in a room, and he appeared out of nowhere. But, but that's where we also need to pick up the narrative. Why are the disciples finding themselves another locked room in fear for their lives? Did Jesus not breathe the Spirit of God upon them? Did Jesus not give them the spiritual embodiment of peace? Historically, we have railed Thomas for his unbelief, but in reality, the disciples are just as unfaithful as they allow themselves not to be empowered by the Spirit of God who spoke life and breathed life into their existence. In reality, this is not just an opportunity for Thomas to see, to feel, and to trust. This is an opportunity for all of them to see and to feel and to trust what Jesus has said and has done is living truth and transformational truth. In fact, sometimes seeing and feeling leads us to believing that we are forgiven. As one author put it, this, I think, is the way that we assume faith works. Yes, perhaps you've got doubts and questions and fears, but then God arrives and those all fall away, replaced by joy and wonder and, of course, unshakable faith. Thomas struggles with the report given to him. He questions and pokes at it, wouldn't you? He witnesses firsthand the suffering of Jesus to the journey to the cross. He has spent the last eight days trying to pull himself together. And what is 
life going to look like next? How do you overcome the unbelievable act of injustice they have witnessed? Faith is not a doctrinal statement. Faith is an experience of the unbelievable truth and yet believing it anyways. Faith isn't always perfect. May we recall Mark's gospel in which he tells us about a sick boy. The father of the child begs Jesus, I believe, but help my unbelief. If you are a person who already has a difficult time overcoming the hurdle of regret and negative self-perception, I can imagine seeing and feeling God's grace would go a long way in believing it to be true. There is beauty in poking and prodding our faith. Faith should not be assumed, but examined and experienced. And as we can see the disciples, still a week after Jesus first appeared to them, overwhelmed them with grace, we find that forgiveness is an extraordinary and ongoing journey. It's one that doesn't happen instantaneously or overnight. Jesus is inviting Thomas not to simply believe in him, not to simply see and to touch, but to trust what Jesus promised will come true. The pain of mistakes made is felt internally by all involved. Yet, what finds restoration within us, emotionally and psychologically and relationally and spiritually, is the healing balm of forgiveness. Research shows that those who refuse to forgive suffer great results. These individuals have a higher stress level, higher heart rates, more physical pain, and more pessimistic view of themselves and their view of others. It also has shown that individuals who struggle with forgiving others are more likely to experience a decline in their immunological and cardiovascular health. What this research tells us is that we are designed to experience grace and mercy both as recipients and as givers. Forgiveness allows us to move on. It removes us from the feelings of anger and hate. Everyone has something they can, they can be forgiven for, but they must also forgive others. Forgiveness allows us to leave what is in the past in the past and focus on the present and the future. And that doesn't mean that we'll not have setbacks of our views of ourself and views of others that we're in relationships with. As one person put it, a natural resurgence of unforgiveness feelings is normal. It's like having a piece of cake during a diet. Just because you have a setback doesn't mean you're an unforgiving or unforgiven person. But what we can learn from the Easter story is that we are called to connect with those we have wronged, to meaningfully apologize for our errors, learning from our mistakes as we journey forward. For those that know they have been forgiven by others, can you believe this within yourself? Can you let go of that guilt and that shame that is very real? Forgiving yourself often, often requires finding a way to learn from our experiences and grow as a person. To do this, we need to understand why we behave the way we do and where that guilt comes from as we try to make strides forward in faith. The Bible calls this process confession and repentance. But like in our text, these things can bring us to a place of healing and restoration through God's love for us. Forgiveness is important to the healing process since it allows you to let go of anger and guilt and shame and sadness and all of these experiences by moving forward. Or as the great Desmond Tutu wrote, with each act of forgiveness, whether small or great, 
we move towards wholeness.